So what keeps you alive? Four big bottles of water a day, two packs of Marlboro Reds, and I don't that what keeps me alive, shit. Um, music, I, can't, I have to listen to music all day long. I'd say that, that keeps me going. I'm a pretty dark person. I've thought about ending it a million times, and I have to say that music keeps me here. By far, the main thing. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Sitting in the studio thinking about which move will go right now. Freestyle right now. Yo, what's good? And welcome back to another episode of the Color Reimagined Podcast presented to you by People of Color Clothing. Um, and today we have a very, I always say special, but this is an important topic. We're talking about mental health awareness, mental health, just mental health in general, right? So um, it is Mental Health Month, so it's only right that we have a mental health conversation. Um, unfortunately, my co-host, Mark Brown, wasn't able to make it today, but have something very special for you guys. We have a, a guest who just so happens to be a mental health professional. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce uh, Reginald Gilmore. All right, give it up for Reginald Gilmore. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure, man. I know we uh we was talking offline. Um, Mark is the catalyst of setting this whole thing up. So shout out to Mark Brown. Um, but just kind of offline, you were telling me about um just what it's like to be a mental health professional, and it's just an honor to have you here. Um, you're kind of like a unicorn in the industry. So um, to have you in this type of setting, to have you be able to share your experience with the audience is going to be um very helpful. So hopefully, you know, I've curated uh, some questions that can really pinpoint and help people um, get a better understanding of mental health and what you do and how you got to where you are. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to have the conversation. Uh, I'm excited to jump in. Uh, for sure, man. So let's just hop, hop right in. Um, can you kind of share with us the, the inspiration behind wanting to become a mental health specialist? And then on the back end of that question, like what was that path like, you know, from a educational standpoint? So <clears throat> growing up, I, I've always been into sports. I never mm -hmm. saw myself as uh, an, an academic individual, you know, uh, thriving in academics. I never saw myself thriving in academics. Uh, but, uh, you know, growing up, my mom has been chronically ill for 25 years. And, you know, she's always had this person around that, you know, made sure she had her medication or made sure that she had what she needed, you know, after surgeries and things of that nature. And uh, later in life, I found out that that was a social worker. And oh, wow. that, that that social work word just kept coming up over and over again. You know, that was a time when we fell on hard times and, you know, we was down at the state building and mom was trying to get, uh, access to food stamps and uh, you know she leaned over and told me hey I think you would be a great social worker and you know that's that's the field that I'm in and I'm working in now you know uh, it's just, crazy how you kind of how you kind of came full circle like you had that moment when you were young and then fast forward not really knowing like and I think we kind of spoke offline too during the pre-interview you was like you were pursuing like engineering or something like that to begin with Pre-engineering, pre-engineering, and uh, it just wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for me, uh, especially not with the schedule that I had, you know, playing basketball and always being on the road. Yeah, and that's dope, man. That's dope. I think it's, I think it's cool how, you know, you use something that 
was personal to you to inspire you to then become who you are today and help other people. Right. So, um, I think that's dope. And then, you know, pursuing your master's in social work, could you kind of like describe that experience? Like what did the classroom atmosphere look like? What did the educational path look like? Um, and like what, what has like the postgraduate experience been like for you? It was a big change for me. You know, I started out at a, a private university, Free Harmon University. And uh, when I went back to school to achieve my master's, I was at a state school. So mm-hmm. you know, the classrooms were a lot bigger. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. The relationships with my professors were different. And uh, it took some adjusting on my part. You know, uh, when I was a college athlete, I had access to tutors and uh when I was in my, my graduate program, I had to take on a load other coursework on my own. So, you know, just trying to encourage myself that I could do it and, you know, um, just trying to stay consistent and focused. You know, I was working full time. Mm-hmm. I was I was working two jobs. Actually, oh, wow. I was two jobs at the time. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, just that passion that I had and, and wanting to help others and, and wanting to obtain, you know, my license kept me going. And that's dope. That's dope. Um, Like, what was the classroom setting like, though? Was it because we kind of talked in the pre-interview process like I remember you telling me like the it wasn't as diverse. And then you also mentioned like a certain professor that might have been like a catalyst in helping you, you know, stay the course. So. Originally, transitioning majors and, you know, taking my qualifying courses to Mm -hmm. achieve my bachelor's degree or my master's degree, I realized that, you know, I was the only black male in the classroom setting. Uh, The the field is dominated by, you know, females and females do a wonderful job in this profession. Uh, But I think a lot of times when you get higher up in the field and you start doing clinical work, you start to notice that there are a lot of males that need attention and they feel comfortable talking to other males. Um, So, you know, working around females kind of discouraged me. Um, And... If it wasn't for Nadine McDill, one of my professors at Free Harmon University that told me that, you know, I would be a unicorn in the field and that, you know, I could help my community in some some pretty amazing ways. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I'll be here today. So, you know, I, every chance I get, you know, I, I call out her name and, you know, I, I, I really do appreciate her encouraging me to stay the course. That's dope. And I think, like, kind of just marinating on that conversation that we had, um, I, I kind of thought about the diversity aspect, right? You being a unicorn, you being surrounded, you being in a female-dominated industry, um, as a black male who who is pursuing or who is in the pursuit of becoming a licensed therapist, um, being in that environment that lacked diversity, do you think that at some point um, that's kind of a hindrance to the therapy workforce, not having the... I guess the the gender diversity, but also the racial diversity, right? Because when I think of therapy, I think of wanting to talk to somebody who is competent in what I go through, how I talk, how I move, how, you know, what my upbringing was like. So do you think like that could possibly have or be a hindrance um, that may not be talked about enough within the academia sector, not having like diverse cohorts of people 
who are pursuing their their career in therapy most definitely most definitely and it's a disservice to our community if you know you 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 think about it <clears throat> some of our struggles are the same mm-hmm. you know and we're able to relate in a lot of ways so you know when i sit down in that chair or when i sit down on that couch and i see someone on the other side of it you know that that resembles me or that looks like me i'm able to build a rapport faster because we have a connection that's already been created through our life experiences yeah. and you know if, if we don't have a, a enough black individuals or enough black males and black females that are in a range of fields to be able to make an individual feel comfortable about accessing these services then you know we find ourselves in a predicament that we are in today where you know the black community um is, is just now starting to highlight the importance of mental health oh, this should sure. happen years ago for this sure years ago you know mental health is just as critical as our health in general yeah so, you know it's, it's it's very important that we diversify these fields and that we research these fields that lack individuals that look like us and you mm-hmm. know perish the generation is coming up to 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 make a way and that's why that's kind of why you're so important because you are that example right um you are that walking breathing example of like this is who i am this is what i did i did play college basketball i did go to a private university i did go to a state school um but I, i i put the ball down and i pursued something a little bit more serious right so people can now look at you and your example and say you know what i want to be like you know, Reginald Gilmore, right? I want to be like Reggie, right? I don't want to be like Mike. I want to be like Reggie. So I think it's, I think it's cool being who you are. And then when you think about it from a black perspective, I mean, I know it, it probably only gets worse as, you know, you kind of go down the, the racial scale, right? Um, Native American therapists, Asian therapists, biracial therapists, um, Middle Eastern therapists. So it's just like, I know that it's a glaring, um, void within therapy and that that can somewhat kind of be a barrier you know not only for black folks but for biracial for multiracial for you know um hispanics for most definitely you know it's just it's just the list goes on so um i appreciate you for you know definitely standing up and taking that that challenge on on, on being who you are um which kind of takes us to the next question like what is it what is it like being a mental health professional or as you like to be referred to a behavior health consultant in the black community and in, in, in communities of color there there are multiple individuals in the family structure that's dealing with mental health on a daily basis and i really feel like i'm being paid to do something that i was already doing as a child growing up you know uh my mom struggled with mental health my father my sister i've had my own bouts you know with mental health and to be able to 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 have a conversation with somebody and to provide you know support is everything to me you know um with things that i've the knowledge that i've accumulated over my time as being a professional, you know, before I was working in a hospital setting or a clinical setting, I worked in an elementary school and I would see these young boys constantly being diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, we don't realize how detrimental these labels are for these families and for these young men that grow up in a system that feels like 
they're not normal or they're not like everyone else. So, so the fact that I have put myself in a position to be able to do something about it means everything to me. Uh, and, and, and I am extremely careful when I am choosing to diagnose an individual because of what I saw working in a school setting or because of what I saw at the ground level when I was a case manager and how detrimental those labels can be to families that follow some people for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you definitely play an important role because, like, even to think of, thinking about what you just said from a educational setting, and thinking about you know individuals that I know who were probably mixed misdiagnosed or just kind of like having a system of people around them that were just lazy and just say, hey, this this student is this way because of that, right? Um, right. And that that definitely follows a person for a very long time, right? And I just I think about individuals. Um, that are close to me. I don't want to put anybody's business out there, but um, without their consent, but just thinking about, you know, what and seeing firsthand what that can do to an individual, like mentally, right? Because it's just like, okay, I've been labeled as this, so I'm not smart enough to do this. Um, I'm not capable of doing this because I say, they say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I got ADHD or something like that, right? So I think like being misdiagnosed um, and dealing with people who are in environments that they're not prone to being in and not being competent or not being, not, I wouldn't say competent, but not being relatable enough to understand that, okay, this kid might have something going on at home um, that you might not necessarily understand, right? So I think you were sharing a story with us um, about the, the girl um, who was kind of misdiagnosed Right. Could you kind of share? Could you could you kind of share that story with us? So we have students that home life contribute to their behaviors in the classroom, and you know this young lady couldn't sit still. Uh, she had a hard time focusing during tests, and it was because she was used to having background noise going on constantly. She comes from a big family where people are constantly communicating in the background. People are yelling, people are screaming, people are listening to music. And, you know, she was diagnosed with ADHD. You know, mm -hmm. she was told that, you know, she had a hard time focusing and she couldn't focus without medication. And there's alternate ways to deal with behaviors without using medication. Medication is detrimental to, you know, an extent. Some people need medication, but, you know, the label on the medication clearly states that, you know, we recommend you not take longer than six months, but yet we have people taking medications for their entire lives. Yeah. Long story short, you know, we provided this young lady with an MP3 player, you know, um, with, with ocean sounds and calming music. And she excelled in the classroom and those behavior problems disappeared and she had no problem focusing at all. So, you know, I think we need to be more creative in the accommodations that we provide our students with versus labeling, labeling them and misdiagnosing them and, you know, potentially leading them to depend on medication as a crutch. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, that's an excellent example of, um, putting different practices in use like you don't always have to throw medicine at everything and i think our society has kind of gotten used to just throwing medicine at, at, at problems right so um i don't know that was a, that was a really cool dope story um which kind of takes us into the next question um 
Could you kind of share your perspective on the correlation between upbringing and how we choose to manage our mental health and or hardships as we get older? Um, and this kind of question is derived from like, uh, I have like the quintessential like black male story, right? Grew up with a single parent, um, mother working multiple jobs and seeing that takes on like a persona of itself. Right. So my mother is a, a very strong, independent I'm about to get this shit done. I got to provide for my family type of woman. Right. Oh. So seeing that as a child, I'm just like, okay, I got to take on that energy. Right. I got to be a man at a younger age. Right. So I think, you know, in society, we kind of teach our women to be strong, independent women. Right. You don't need, you don't need nobody but yourself. And then we kind of teach our men to be kind of emotionalist. Right. So I am a byproduct of that. So I am a very, I would kind of consider myself an unemotional person. Right. So that's kind of where this kind of question kind of comes from. So could you kind of share your, pers- uh, your perspective on the correlation between upbringing and eventually how we manage our mental health growing up? Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, so growing up, I grew up with my mom and my dad, you mm-hmm. know, in my household and, you know, they rarely talk. They hardly talked about that day. They they really talked about how they were feeling, and you know, both of them would turn inward. So it was only natural that I would, you know, pick up on that behavior. And I find myself struggling now because I have chosen to hold everything in, you know, and that's detrimental. Not yeah. being able to express your emotions or talk about how you feel uh, can really lead to depression and anxiety, and you know a multitude of other things as well. And, you know, growing up in a black household, one of the things that my parents taught me at a young age was that what happens in this house stays in this house. Oh, for sure. My house was the same way. Most definitely. And, you know, we would see on TV, uh, we would see in, in, in our neighborhoods, social workers or mental health professionals coming in and calling DHS and removing certain family members from the home. And it, it was, it was a trauma traumatic experience. Yeah. And it, it, it caused me to shy away from help or what help mm-hmm. was. Yeah. And, you know, now I still find myself trying to reprogram and buy into this idea of, talking to someone else and talking through my problems and letting someone else in so that I can relieve all of this pressure that's building up inside whenever I find myself overwhelmed. Um, but in it, uh, how can I, and if you want to, we can, you know, we can touch on how, you know, on, on social media, all you see is people smiling and having a good time. And mm-hmm. Okay. I'll ask that. I'll ask that right after this question. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Man, look at you dropping dimes. Chris Paul out here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely, man. So just kind of hearing hearing all of that and internalizing it, it just kind of we don't ask for help, right? Especially when you're when you're taught unintentionally to turn inward, right? To to not express, not ask for help, right? And that's just kind of like that's who we are, especially as black men. Like we're, we're told to just shut up, don't cry and keep going. Right. And I think we kind of take that into our adulthood 
and it kind of shows itself in our relationships. It shows ourselves in our friendships and our work, um, the way we raise our kids. Right. Because the cycle only repeats itself. Right. Cause if my mother is telling me, yo, like shut up and keep going. Like you don't got time to cry. We don't got time to talk about our feelings. We got to like, we got bills to pay. Right. So right. you're going to probably just like I bought the same bread. My mother bought when I was young, I'm probably going to, you know, put that same energy into my children. Um, so with that being said, like what effect do you believe um, distractions have in relation to someone suppressing their mental health struggles and, and hardships? Cause we have so many different distractions and so many things that can kind of like, we can throw ourselves into and not deal with what we have to deal with. I think it, it, it causes us to ignore all the chaos that's going on around us. You know, when we think about this last year that we've had, Mm-hmm. You know, more people are starting to pay attention because those distractions was removed from the pandemic restrictions. People had to sit within those feelings and those emotions that they would typically go out to the club or go out to the bar and, you know, temporarily forget about, you know, or in, in our conversation that we had prior to our meeting tonight, you know, mm-hmm. people throw themselves in relationships that they're not ready to be in you know, uh, just to try to fill that void in, in the inside. And for sure, man, I think, I think we, we have a society full of like void fillers, right? We have a society full of distractions and I think it's easier to kind of throw yourself into a distraction rather than deal with what is in front of you. And to your point, that pandemic really for the first time in our lives, like with everything being shut down, like we couldn't throw ourselves into the bar. We couldn't throw ourselves into the party. We couldn't throw ourselves into the club. We couldn't throw ourselves into the kickback to forget. Like we literally had to like sit with ourselves. Right. So in the beginning of the pandemic, it was pandemonium, um, not really knowing what the hell COVID was, how to get it, how to, con- you know, and then it was like, okay, cool. We're going to be in this, you know, we getting our stimmies, like, that's Netflix, right? And then after that Netflix phase, it's just like, damn, who am I? What am I doing? Like, you know what I'm saying? So like <laughs> never in our lives have we had to spend so much time inside with ourselves. And maybe like and, and, and I'm I'm assuming you have a partner, right? Right, right. So mate, like maybe, you know, for the first time in our lives, like we sitting with our partner, like, damn, who are you? Like the hell? Like <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like those distractions that we kind of impose on ourselves um consistently um even with like social media um for the first time like we really had to sit with ourselves and i kind of have a story to tell kind of later on in a podcast but um it was just the pandemic really i mean some of the stuff kind of fell out the closet like you, you know distractions allow us to sweep things under the rug and put things in suitcases and closets and i mean the pandemic was like yo what's up i'm here like you know what i'm saying let's talk about it um so I feel like everyone had an adjustment period. Oh, for sure. For sure. For everyone. It looked different for everyone. For sure. For sure. So kind of segueing um, from that topic, like what effect do you think mass media has on programming our emotional output? Uh, A major part. You Mm -hmm. know, when you think about some of the posts that you see on Instagram, if you think about all of the posts that you see on Instagram, you only see people happy. You know, you only see people having a good time. And I think you lose sight of reality and what real life looks like. And real life 
we have emotional ups and downs. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that emotional roller coaster where you have your bad days and you have your good days. And I think we forget that they're all necessary and, and for, for us to achieve happiness. We we wouldn't know what happiness felt like if we didn't experience sadness. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't know what sadness felt like if we didn't know what it felt like to be happy. So, you know, they're one and the same. And we need both. But again, on social media, you only see the good days. Yeah. I think that throws a lot of people in this this pit of comparison where they want to compare their lives to someone else. And our journey are and our journeys are all different. For sure. For sure. I think like um you know, social media can be tricky, right? It's like a rabbit hole of just nothingness at the end of the day. And, <laughs> and just kind of being on the other side of those pictures, like you kind of know, like, like I've been on a date, this is a long time ago. I've been on a date with a chick and she's like taking a picture of her food and she takes like 50 pictures of her food. Right. But she only posts one. And I remember seeing that picture on Instagram thinking like, damn, people don't know the behind the scenes of like, me holding the phone, yeah. Her positioning her plate to the this like it's just like we try to portray this perfectness online, but our life really ain't like that, right? And I think that that can really send people down a rabbit hole um, and only compound the insecurities and the mental health struggles that we might have. Um, so since I, I feel like to your point, social media definitely plays a huge role. Um, in our emotional output and, and, and just our mental health in general. Um, but kind of taking it back to a more serious note, um, what are some of the stereotypes and barriers you feel are associated with mental health? Some of the, some of the stigmas are mostly negative. Yeah. You know, uh, when, when I think about family members coming up that struggle with mental health, they were always looked down on like, you know, there's something wrong with them. But they're crazy. Uh, yeah. Right, they're crazy. You know, you throw out that crazy word. And the truth of the matter is they just didn't have access to the care that they needed to be successful in society. You know, um, if, if you there was a point where if you were diagnosed with a, a mental illness, you couldn't work or you couldn't get a job. And that only contributes more to the symptoms that you experience, you know, uh, living with mental health. And I think that, again, there is a negative stigma on social service and people wanting to go and get help. Mm hmm. For sure. And I think like to to a to a certain extent, we all crazy, right? We all got a lot of we got we all got some loose screws um within us. But I think it's a it, it says something about an individual who says, you know what, like mentally I'm not up to par right now and I need help. So there's a certain boldness, there's a certain respect level that needs to be had um in reprogramming the way we kind of view, you know mental health right because we we're always like quick to be like man you crazy especially in a black community like mental health is one of those things it's just like oh you seeing a therapist like what you got going on like you crazy or like you got relate you know what i'm saying like so it's such a stigma surrounding mental health but it don't need to be a stigma like it's it's normal like we all got screws loose and we all need help and we all need to talk about it and it's it's kind of weird we all kind of utilize mental health therapy but just in different ways right so um i know for sure we were talking yesterday 
And uh, I know for me, I was talking about my barber. You know what I'm saying? My barber, Demetrius Watts, was like, that was like a therapy session every week for me. Like, I get my hair cut. You know what I'm saying? We get to talk about relationships. We get to talk about stocks and bonds and all type of stuff. Um, but that was my ace, right? Um, right. And even aside from getting my hair cut, like, if I had a problem, it's just like, yo, Watts, I need to come over. Like, we need to talk while we playing 2K or we need to take a ride, take a loop around the city or something. So, you know, we we criticize people. We got this negative stigma on people who actually seek professional help. But we we do it all the time. Right. We got a problem with we got a problem with Susie. I'm going to call my homeboy Dan. Right. And talk about it. So we're, we're utilizing mental health resources. It's just not in a professional setting. So um, the barriers that we have are just kind of like, why are they there? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we all got screws loose. We all a little crazy. We all, you know what I'm saying? We all a little crazy. And I think something to consider is, am I crazy? Because I am constantly seeing our community murdered Mm -hmm. by the masses, by an institution that was set up to protect us. Yeah. You know? Like, think about the toll that that has on us as individuals constantly seeing individuals that look like us murder for no reason. For What's sure. That? It definitely takes a big toll. And yet we turn around and we call somebody crazy because they're having a hard time processing it all. You know, and a lot of the mental illnesses that we have and 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 the families across the world are genetic. So it's something that a previous family member struggled with and wasn't mm-hmm. able to overcome or wasn't able to get help with, and it's passed down to you. And, and now it's your turn. It's your turn to 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 break those chains and you For know sure. to start sure. programming the thought process that goes into this is who I am. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, you don't have depression. You don't have anxiety. You're living with it. You're living with depression. You're living with anxiety. Mm, that's deep. This is own entity. You're your own person, you know, and you just have to learn to deal with it, you know, and, and, and me as a therapist, it's, it's my job to, you know, help provide that individual with the right tools to be able to live with those illnesses and be successful yeah for sure to your point um that generational thing is is real right because hurt people hurt people right we hear that in music all the time and i feel like a lot in in a lot of communities of color we do not seek professional help um and just generationally we put band-aids on bullet wounds right and that hurt and that trauma oozes on to the next generation Right. And it goes on to the next generation and the next generation. So like whether it's in the native community, the black community, the Hispanic community, it's just like we underutilize mental health professionalism or mental health resources all the time. Right. And we wonder and not not that we wonder, but it's just like, why do we do that? Right. Because we're dealing with a society that is racist oppressive we're dealing with environmental racism structural racism systematic racism mass incarceration um we're dealing with food deserts we're dealing with broken households we're dealing with all these different things but we continually we i mean we always use the word resilient right but we need to transition from 
you know, considering ourselves and praising ourselves for being resilient in all this chaos. And we need to be triumphant, right? So we need to, Most definitely. and I feel like mental health is a big part of that, right? We need to transition from, you know, praising the struggle, praising the, the working three jobs and being a single parent and, you know, seeing a, a killing on this day and going to work the next day. Like we need to transition from being resilient to triumphant. Right. And I feel like people like you are a, are a bridge to that. Right. You're a bridge from being resilient to being triumphant because being resilient is not fun. Right. Being a strong, independent person is not fun. Um, having to, to, to be, strong for everybody else is not fun right so i feel like you know we we definitely need to to your point reprogram the way we look at mental health because the way we looking at it now is just not it's not it's not it's not the business it's not the business so um, you got to think about it like this too you want to have if you was having heart problems, you wouldn't have your cousin come over to the crib and 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 and, and do heart surgery. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's the same so, thing. It, right. Like I the 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 way we think about things and the way our brain works is, is is really important. And it takes a trained professional to be able to help us reprogram a lot of generational thoughts, mm-hmm. generational pain. Inspirational yep. trauma that has accumulated over 300 years. For sure. For that, sure. That's not something that we can just put in anyone's hands. Um, but kind of transitioning into the next phase of our conversation is utilization, right? Um, you shared a a document with me prior to this interview, and I was looking at the utilization rate of mental health, and I was just kind of like taken aback. And I'm just like, yo, what? Like as much stuff as we deal with um, from a societal standpoint, we utilize we utilize mental health at the lowest rate. Right. So looking at the list, you know, it's it's Asians at 23 percent, blacks at 33 percent, Hispanics at 34 percent multiracial mixed people at 43, 43 percent. Or did I say that backwards? Hispanics at 34%, mixed, mixed race, multiracial at 43%, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual adults at 49%, and at 50% is white people, right? And I remember being in my undergrad, I got my I got my bachelor's in public health. And as you know, public health is this vast, like, big just mental health is a beast right it's very simplistic but it's a beast um and we covered mental health um and i remember seeing a slide in one of my classes on this very topic utilization and i remember seeing white people at the top and i'm just like what with all this shit that we go through as people of color like we utilize mental health the least and the the way that society is basically built for white people they they use it the most like what they going through that we're not going through. I don't get it. So could you kind of like elaborate on utilization? Most definitely. You know, uh, when you again, think about our upbringing um, and when you think about the access to care. Oh, that's a that's a good point. Good point. Walmart is everywhere. Yeah. And- in a lot of white communities, there are multiple providers. In a lot of white communities, you have families that have insurance that cover mental health needs. And, you know, unfortunately, 
there's a lot of disproportion when it comes to access to care or, you know, access to means in communities of color. And knowledge is everything. So with that being said, also the outreach is different. You know, when you individuals looking for the help that they need. And I and I believe that it's systematic. And what oh, I mean sure. is sure. we've again been brainwashed into believing that the services that have been put in place to help individuals are not there to help us. So it could be a minute problem and other races or the white race will go and address that problem before it becomes overwhelming or becomes big to where it's unmanageable. In the black communities, we wait until the very last minute. <laughs> yeah. The very last minute. Yeah. Because we have so much else to worry about and so much else going on. Mm-hmm. You know, when a person is thinking about taking their lives, now we want to take mental health serious, you know? But a lot of times it's too late. So I'm, I'm saying this because we need to be adamant on going to see the doctor when we're not feeling well we need to be you know when we're feeling low moods or or starting to notice isolating behaviors we need to go seek professional help to address these things before they snowball into something catastrophic and we lose another individual in our community for sure and not only that you know we pass it to the next generation to our point earlier um but relatability and accessibility is something that i got out of your answer and thinking about utilization thinking about my mother that i described earlier right single parent working multiple jobs trying to provide for her three children like my mom probably wouldn't have had time to seek professional help right because she's on to the next job right or she's thinking about how am i gonna pay this bill or how we you know what i mean so i think that might be another thing that we need to i don't know debunk right making time to 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 make sure our our mental is right um but as you were talking i was just kind of thinking about that like damn like damn could my mother have sacrificed money from her check to seek professional help right and that's something that we have to ask ourselves as a community because my mother is not monolithic right so my story is not you know just one of one like my story is one of millions Right. So I think like as you were talking about your utilization and accessibility, um, I thought about relatability. So, right. Like when my mom walks into when my mom takes off of work, walks into that mental health provider, like who is she talking to? Right. Is she talking to someone who looks like you or is she talking to someone that looks like, you know, somebody else? Right. So that's another element. So it's just like, you know, to your point, there's a lot of layers, almost systematically, a lot of layers that kind of kind of makes us think that we don't have time for mental health, that we don't have time to utilize these resources that can heal us mentally. And our brain is a very powerful, not, I wouldn't say weapon, but a very powerful thing that we under, we undervalue, right? We don't take care of our brain the way that we, we take care of our, our hamstrings and our quads and our calves. Cause we're constantly stretching and doing yoga and lifting weights. And, but how are we up here? Right. So um, to your point, man, it's, I mean, you just made it make sense. It is kind of systematic the way that we underutilize um, seeking professional help. And um, 
within your answer, you kind of talked about suicide a little bit. And I know this is something we wanted to cover, you know, during our pre-interview process. And I really wanted to cover this because I know talking to my cousin, Mark Brown, and who I'm talking to every day, um, you know, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago. And I don't know if he meant to say it, but he kind of casually said it. And he was talking about a series of episodes that he had on this very topic, which is suicide. And this is an individual I talk to every single day. And I was just kind of like, what? Bro, what? Like, you? Like, I've been talking to you every day for the last five, six, seven years, bro. And I've never, ever came up, right? And I marinated on the conversation that we had just thinking, like, damn, like, like, am, am I, like, like, am I doing something wrong as not only a, a friend or a family member or a cousin, but like, am I not creating space for that conversation to be had? Right. Um, but then fast forward, I'm thinking about, damn, I was just in that mental state a couple months ago and I did not tell anybody. And so I get where he's coming from. I can empathize with him now on why he chose not to share or he chose to share all after the fact. Um, because I know like from personal experience, um, you know, at the peak of, you know, at the couple of months ago, my business was at a peak, right? Everything is just operating, um, crazy orders coming in. I'm employed. I employed two people. Like it was really dope. Um, that's major. But with that came a lot of, for lack of a better term, shit, right? A lot of things came with that. Um, a lot of unwanted attention, a lot of hearsay, a lot of this, a lot of that. And it took its toll on me. It took a heavy toll on me. Um, to the point to where like I had a hard time getting out of bed in the morning like I darked out my room like I put up uh, blackout curtains on my windows and I was just really basking in my depression um, even to the point of like telling my my two assistants like Yo, y'all don't need to come in like I'm gonna handle it by myself I let work get backed up uh, I was just in this very depressive state and then it kind of got worse when I kind of I kind of created the environment to make it worse, right? To strengthen my depression, right? I like I said I blacked out my rooms. I'm isolating myself from the people that I'm working with every day. I'm isolating myself from my roommates and I'm locking myself in this room. And in that room I'm having battles with myself. I'm having battles with my mental, right? Um even when Mark called me, my cousin even when my you know my cousin called me, I'm I'm putting on that facade. I'm putting on that voice, right? Um, as if everything is normal um, when everything was not normal. Like I'm literally waking up every morning thinking about suicide. I'm going to bed every night thinking about suicide wow. um, in my room. Right. And because in my room, it's just like I'm comfortable enough to to let my thoughts go. Right. Because once I open that doorknob and I walk over that threshold, like I have to be Darius, the POC leader. I have to be Darius, the employer. I have to be Darius, um, the guy that's getting interviewed. I have to be Darius, the guy that's on magazine covers. Like I have to be I have to be that person. I have to be that strong leader of the POC movement. Right. When I when I walk over that threshold. But in my room, I was just going through it, bro. Um, and I remember like being in that suicidal state I was so, I was so down and out, bro. Like my ex-girlfriend, um, she told me when we first started dating that she had a gun, um, in her, I, I think it was either in her house or a car. I couldn't remember, but in that same time frame, 
she went out of town and I found the key. I almost felt like it was destiny that I found this key that I thought I lost at her crib. Um, and I think I might've been watching her dog. I'm not sure, but I went to her crib and I actually was looking for the gun. Right. So I'm looking for the gun because in my mind, I'm thinking like, bro, it's like this, this cloud that's hovering over me, this depression that just kind of got me like fighting my, myself in the room. Like this shit ain't going nowhere. And my only escape is suicide. And that's the way I was thinking. Right. So halfway through me going through her shit, I'm thinking like, bro, what the hell am I doing, bro? Like I'm better than this. So I put everything back, like, you know, perfect. Like, so she wouldn't notice. I never told her um, until she probably hears this now. And then, you know, and, you know, depression is one of those things that's up and down, like a roller coaster, right? So um, I come off that moment, like, damn, I really let myself, like, get to that, right? I'm not in my room no more. Like, I got to, like, I'm, you know, I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. POC. Like, I got to, I got to be stronger than this. Um, and that's a high moment. And then the low moment would come back and I would find myself at Bymart, right? I'm at Bymart a couple months earlier. I'm at Bymart looking for a fishing rod. Cause you know, I'm trying to go fishing. I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's COVID. I'm trying to go fishing. Um, but I remember seeing that they had guns there and I'm just like, Oh, okay. Damn. I didn't know Bymart was like that. Right. And for those who don't live in Oregon, I don't know Bymart. Bymart is basically a place that just kind of sells, it just everything like they just kind of sell a little bit of everything a little bit of this a little bit of that um it's kind of like walmart's little distant cousin um but i'm in bymart and i'm thinking to myself like damn like i need to i couldn't find a gun there because i'm back in that low moment i'm like yo i need to find I need to buy, I need to buy a weapon, right? I'm looking at the prices. I'm doing price matches. Like I'm in this bitch, just like fully committed to buying a gun, bro. Like it's just, I was down and out. And I remember one of the things that kind of like deterred me from actually purchasing a, a gun was all of the, the gun talk that was happening in society, right? We need to get mental health checks. We need to do background checks. We need to do all of these things. And I'm just like, but damn, like, I'm not going to pass a mental health test because I'm going through some shit. So they're not going to sell me this gun. So like, then like, like, what am I going to do? Right. Um, like, what am I going to do in, in the midst of all of this, this, this chaos? Like I, I, I want to take my life. I'm preparing for it. So, you know, the gun thing didn't work. I thought about the pill thing. Um, and I kind of got off of that. And then I started to, in this this downward state, I started making preparations, right? I started thinking about the future. I started thinking about, okay, like, because growing up, I always thought, like, suicide is selfish. It only hurts the people around you. So I'm like, you know what? Let me write letters to these people. Let me write letters to my ex. Let me write letters to, um, you know, Emma. Let me write letters to Yvette. Let me write letters to my mother, Mark, Demetrius, JD. Like, let me write letters to my people to let them know, like, I love y'all. I'm sorry. I was going through some shit, but uh, I, it just had, you know what I'm saying? And I remember I wrote these letters on my phone, in my notes on my phone. And um, it just kind of got heavy. Like I'm really, really writing to these people as if I'm gone, as if I'm dead. Right. I'm writing a letter to my dad, my brother, my sister. Um, you know, I'm making sure my assistants got the password to my website so they can keep running the business. Like I'm thinking ahead, and I'm just like, yo, what am I doing, bro? Like, like what, like, am I really here? And I remember thinking to myself, 
I, I heard a record by Big Sean called Deep Reverence. And I feel like that was kind of one of those things that kind of changed my mental outlook because it let me know that I'm not alone. It let me know that like, damn, I'm not the only person out here feeling like this, like Big Sean and Deep Reverence, Deep Reverence featuring the late Nipsey Hussle talked about his mental health struggles and talked about thinking about suicide. And in that moment, I was just like, damn, I'm not the only person. Like, I thought I was like a monolith. I thought like I'm dealing with this shit on my own and I have nowhere to turn. I have no one to talk to because nobody's going to understand. So I hear this record and I'm just like, damn, this is, this is me. And I, I got that song on repeat. I got that song on repeat. Like I'm not alone. Like on some Michael Jackson, like you are not alone type shit. Like <laughs> that's kind of how I felt. Right. Um, but that song was really the catalyst in helping me change the tide and kind of look look at life differently, right? I'm going outside, I'm looking up at the sky, and I'm seeing, and you know them Oregon winners, them Oregon winners hit different, you know what I'm saying? Them Oregon winners will compound a depression on top of depression. Like, it's it's really like that up here. Um, and But in my mind, and you know how dynamic that weather is, it goes from like, um, you know, drizzle to hard rain to like, damn, I'm about to go to the beach. You know what I'm saying? To like raining again. So it's like really dynamic. And I remember going outside one day and it was a crack in the sky and I could see the blue sky, but it was, you know, of course it was like a, it was all, you know, gray, but I can see blue. And in my mind, I'm like on the, in my, and it just metaphorically, I'm just like, all this shit I'm going through is temporary, Right. All the gray cloud, all the gray clouds that's hovering over me, it's temporary because on the other side of that is blue clouds. On the other side of that is the sun. I just don't see it right now, but it's there. And you know that kind of prompted me to create a championship routine that would prevent me from getting to those dark places. Right. So being a little bit more vulnerable to people I talk to every day. You know what I'm saying? Being a little bit vulnerable to my homie Jerron. Being a little bit more vulnerable to Mark Brown. Um, being willing to talk about certain things with certain friends and certain peoples and, and relationships and stuff like that. So I think like vulnerability um, and just like that toxic mental pride, that toxic something we can invent a word for it later. Um, but I think that really was a catalyst to me struggling for such a long time, thinking that to your point earlier, I'm going to turn inward. I'm going to deal with it myself. Like, I don't need to involve any, anybody in this. This is a me problem. I'm going to handle it myself. But I am i didn't realize that I wasn't strong enough to handle it myself, right? Um, because I would allow, you know, outside this room, outside of walking out of my, my personal space, like, I had to be a hero. Like, I had to be like, oh, that's, that's Mr. POC right there. Like, I had to be that. But in my room, it was just like... I was at war with myself, right? I'm up here making preparations for suicide. I'm up here writing letters as if I'm dead already. Like I'm up here, you know, Googling guns and bullets. And I'm just like, you know what I'm saying? And I thought that I can, and that was, that was me dealing with it myself. So to anybody that's listening, it's just like, don't be afraid to kind of tap in with people you talk to and people that you're close to and just be vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? Cause like to our point earlier, we're all a little crazy. We all got a little, we all got screws loose. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's perfect. Um, and yeah. then our yeah. facade. Yeah. We all have our own issues, you know, and, sure. 
we deal with on a daily basis. And I encourage everybody, everybody listening to develop a championship routine. You know, that's major. And I love that you were able to share your story and you felt comfortable enough sharing your story because we need to normalize this as much as possible to encourage the masses to open up about their feelings and, you know, their experiences with depression and suicide. It's, it's, it's important. Uh, for sure, man. I think vulnerability and just normalizing it and to your point, reprogramming the way that we approach our mental strength um, is important. And I think like because of because I am who I am and I, I represent what I represent. Um, I have a shirt within the collection that advocates for mental health awareness. Right. And prior to that, it was just like, I'm saying that because I'm supposed to say it, but having gone through some, for lack of a better word, having gone through some shit, like that shirt hits a little different. Right. So when people say, Hey, what's your favorite shirt in the collection? It's always been immigration. It's beautiful off top. Um, but now it's kind of veering towards like that mental health awareness, you know, product because that that to me like hits a little different now so i think um my advocacy for mental health has been strengthened and i think that you know my my approach to my mental health struggles now is going to be a little different moving forward and i think we all need to kind of like analyze how like how are we taking care of our we go to the gym to work out our biceps our chest our pecs our abs we doing all of this for our our, you know our glutes you know we got the home girls doing squats you know i'm saying we on the bench press trying to get a chest for the beach but like what are we doing for our mental right you know what i'm saying like what are we what are we doing for our mental you know what i mean and i think like I have a newfound respect for individuals like you who have stepped up and answered the call and, you know, created that relatability and, and, and accessibility for people who are really struggling. Right. Um, because it's super duper important. And I just said super duper. Yes, I did. Um, but it's super important. <laughs> it's super, super important. Um, and I just want to say one of the signs look different for everybody. You know, a person doesn't have to be dealing with depression and anxiety for a long period of time. You know, um, you can be on top of the world and and have suicidal thoughts. So again, I'm 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 super excited that you know you you felt comfortable with opening up and sharing your story. Thank you. Nah, no need to thank me, man. Um, you've definitely set the tone. I'm just kind of listening to our interview, listening to you speak. Um, you've definitely kind of made me kind of re- rethink some things, right? U- utilization, turning inward, um, the family dynamics that play into to play that play into this. Like I'm I'm kind of listening to you talk, taking notes, and it just it just makes sense. You know what I'm saying? I think it was just kind of apropos for me to kind of take it there. Um just so people can relate, right? Um but kind of tra- transitioning to a another topic. Um Let's talk about church and religion, right? We talk about some of the barriers that kind of um, prohibit people from utilizing mental health um, professionals or mental health resources. Like, what role do you think church and religion, church and religion, plays in a perception and a relationship for mental health awareness? Oh, it plays a major part. Uh, when I was collecting research uh, for the show, you know, I to see that in the South, in the Bible Belt, the access to care, uh, that those states were at the bottom of the pole 
access to care, availability, that, and it was shocking. But at the same time, it put things in perspective for me because growing up, the church was my foundation. So whenever I was dealing with a problem, whenever my parents was dealing with an issue or a problem, whenever they were experiencing depression, they would turn to the church. And the church was the place that was supposedly, you know, um, able to fix everything. You know, and I credit the church for a lot. I credit religion for a lot because it taught me how to believe in something that, you know, I couldn't see. And that led me to believe in a dream and to keep going and to achieve the things that I didn't think were possible. But again, you know, I think that, you know, there's a major part that religion in the church plays because there's a lot of negative down talk when it comes to stigma. Yeah. Yeah. Negative stigma. Right. So, Oh, you know, I was having a conversation with my dad the other day and I was telling him like, you know, I'm struggling a little bit pops. And he asked me, what, what did I mean? And I told him, you know, I miss being around my people. I miss having a community of people that I can go conjugate, you know, with. And, um, he told me that, you know, well, you worry because you're not praying enough. And I understand where he comes, he's coming from, you know, and I'm not downplaying prayer at all. But at the same time, prayer is just not enough. You know, I need to go sit down and talk to somebody that's in front of me, you know, yeah. about the issues and these problems. Oh, for sure, man. And I think to your point, um, you know, the church has kind of always been that thing for the black community right even dating back to slavery it's just like pray about it you know what i'm yep. saying we're gonna pray our way out of slavery we're gonna play pray our way out of re the reconstruction period we're gonna pray our way out of segregation we're gonna pray our way out of mass incarceration we're gonna pray our way out of the three strikes law we're gonna pray our way out of um you know gun violence unarmed gun like we're gonna pray our way out of it and that's kind of been that's kind of been the narrative, right? We got to pray about this prayer circle, right? That's kind of been that narrative. And I think that kind of is almost a catalyst for creating that, that, that rift in between seeking professional help and just going to the church when it's convenient. Cause a lot of people nowadays go to church when it's convenient or pray when it's convenient. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that's like, why not utilize both? Why not prayer and, you know, say your prayer and then call up your therapist and make an appointment? Like we can you can do both. Right. right. You can have your cake and you can eat it, too. Right. So, I mean, it, it just makes sense. Right. But the Bible Belt and, and just thinking about the South, thinking about, you know, the, the disparities and utilization, it makes like we, we talked on the phone the other day and it was just like, yo, there's there's a church on every corner in the South. And it's not like that on the West Coast. Three or four churches on the show. For sure. For so sure. The, like, the accessibility of, of being able to walk into a church and to receive that peace that's that's needed to, to get to the next day is 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 there. It's yeah, close. Sure. And you don't have to pay a copay. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. You just walk in and just like let me talk to a deacon, let me talk to a pastor, let me talk to the first lady. Let's let's pray this these these issues off. Um but hey, I, I mean, I'm not not to knock prayer because at one time, like I was headed to Lipscomb University and I was trying to, you know, be a pastor myself um, before uh, 
before all of this, you know, of course I had like an epiphany in my life completely went in a different direction. But at one point I was about that church thing. Like I literally used to have a pocket Bible on my back, like back pocket, like always, like I was really about that Jesus gang or die life, like for real. Um, so I kind of know like both dynamics. I know what it's like to be in the church and being fully engulfed in the church. I know what it's like to be halfway in the church. I know what it's like to be spiritual. So, um, you know, you can, you can do both, right? You can call your pastor, call your deacon, pray about it. And then right after that, call your, your mental health therapist, right? Let's make that, let's normalize that. Right. Um, but you said, you said something about, I'm um, talking to your pops about feeling isolated. Right? right. So we're going to talk about something that may not be necessarily related to mental health, but something that we both experience. We're both from Nashville, Tennessee, the great state of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you from you from Chad. I'm from Nashville. But right. that transition from the South to the Pacific Northwest is real like that. Hey, that should hear a little different. Oh, um yeah. And I think Oregon wasn't what I expected it to be. So can you kind of share like your time here and like what what are some things that's kind of caught you by surprise living in Oregon? So I know that we have switched topics, but again, I grew up in the church and that's what my foundation is, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, talking to my clinical supervisor, Roseanne Murmur, when I was really struggling with some depression and anxiety, you know, she asked me, one of the first questions she asked me was, have you been going to church? <laughs> and I yeah. was like, no, nah, not really. And I was shocked to hear the question because again, religion is not really big here in the Pacific yeah. West, you know? And it's almost like you look down upon if you exercise your faith or you know if, if 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 you are encouraging someone else to turn to faith right mm -hmm. and uh, to hear her ask me that question i was completely shocked and uh, i told her no and she said why not you know it's a part of your routine and i think that you know by going to a tent service somewhere you will feel a little piece of home mm -hmm. you know? because i felt distant from every and i was i'm three thousand miles away from home you know i don't have any friends here i didn't know anybody you know i didn't know where any other hangout spots was and i i had to just kind of sit alone in my mess you know and uh again i thought that i was coming out here to escape it all but you know, I really, <laughs> you know yeah it, it was all a beautiful facade you know don't get me wrong the pacific northwest is a beautiful place you know, but at the same time, I think growing up in the South, I was used to racism, aggressive racism. Yeah. And knowing if a person wanted me there versus them not wanting me to be around. Yeah. And here, it's in the air. You never know. You never know. You never know. You know, uh, and it's a smile smile at you pat you on your back and could be plotting on your demise and uh that's 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 dangerous that's scary and uh i was i was really shocked to hear about the history you know um related to a lot of social injustices and social issues here in the city for sure man i think that uh oregon has a very jaded historical past that isn't often talked about um you know a lot of people don't know that oregon was founded as a white utopia right so um 
and it was basically illegal to live in Oregon as a person of color, meaning that you could not, you could not have a job. You could not own land up until like the 1920s, 1930s. Um, and then you kind of get into the Vanport flood. You get into Portland being one of the fastest gentrifying cities in America. Um, Portland has a very liberal perception, right? And I feel like white people here are a little different um, because, you know, they kind of, Organic has kind of branded itself as like the liberal capital of the country, right? And that white bubble here is big because there's not a lot of diversity, right? So people preach, you know, being liberal and all of this, but they really don't have like a, a close proximity to diversity. They probably never dealt with diversity before. Um, so interacting with them is a little different sometimes, right? You can have people that's like performative. You can have people that, that that's doing a little bit too much. Um, and I think for me in my transition from the, the East to the West, like I would find myself looking for black people. Right. And when I saw black, I used to count on my hand every day the amount of black people I would see on campus and I'm just like yo why am I doing that like what the hell's going on like you know what I'm saying and it's just being black up here it just hits a little different um and even the black people from Oregon it's just like you have some that's like okay yes thank you then you have some that's just like you can tell that at a young age they just chose to blend in they chose to just to to blend in to make the majority comfortable um, so it just kind of like it was a weird dynamic, and you can always tell when somebody is from like Cali or somebody from you know what I'm saying like it's just Oregon, Portland is I think Portland brands itself as a weird city and is indeed that it is a weird city. But um, this environment has taught me so much about myself, taught me so much about society, and really it laid the foundation for creating the People of Color Clothing brand. So. Um, it may not be a lot of diversity here. It may not be a lot of um, whatever, but, you know, the People of Color Clothing brand allows us to have, and this is a shameless plug, but the People of Color Clothing brand allows us, our, in our small presence, allows us to be a little bit bigger, right? Because then we're walking conversation pieces and, you know, I don't know if other coaches do this, but I know when I see another brother on the street, it's the head nod, Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's a head nod, but for the people that have, you know, invested in the people of color clothing movement, you have that, that logo on your chest. That's our head nod. It's almost like that, that me too. Like, okay, you, you surviving, like I'm surviving, man. We in this, to, we in this together, bro. Like, you know what I'm saying? Peace, love and happiness to you. So, um, this being a, I don't like to say a minority, but being an individual in this type of like being an individual in this white dominating environment, like creating something that enables me to have a bigger presence, allows me to create awareness, allows people to feel like the discomfort that I feel about reading what's on the back of my garment like that. I mean, that's powerful. Right. And, you know, the three ethos of the brand is community, culture and confidence. And when you wear POC, especially in an environment like this, you gonna you gonna is you gonna feel that, you know what I mean? You're going to feel that. But um yeah man you got any last words man i feel like you know i didn't i didn't talk your head off and ask you a ton of questions you got any last words i think what you have able to do with p 
people of color clothing brand is amazing. And you have created that community that I was longing for. Oh, that's dope. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I'm encouraging everybody, man, to, to go check out the website. Go copy <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that, man. So if people are listening, um, you know, they've heard our conversation about mental health. Um, sorry I didn't get to the IG questions. I feel like I've asked so many questions to this point, but I want to appreciate everybody who submitted questions on our IG. Um, Carol, Isadora, Hallie, um, Manny, all you different people. I, I, I didn't name everybody, but those are just some of the people I see off the off the rip. Thank you for submitting questions on on Instagram. But where can people reach you? Like, what is some of your information that you want to throw out there, just in case people want to reach out? Maybe scheduling an appointment. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, talk 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 your business real quick. Yeah. So we're working on a website right now. Me and the team. So you know, we have a website up, man. A blog. You know, educating our people and educating the masses about mental health and you know the resources in the area. Um, so I'll make sure that you know we provide all of that information uh, below. For sure, man. So I just want to say thank you again for sharing your time with us. Um, this was a very important, very heavy topic that needed to be discussed. I didn't realize it was Mental Health Awareness Month until like maybe May 15th. But it was just it's apropos that we did this. Um, very excited to upload this. Very excited to get this conversation flowing and going. Um, and yeah, man, thank you for your time, bro. And you're welcome on the POC platform at any time, any any time. I know we kind of talked about some other topics that we might want to cover. So um, we might be seeing you back on the podcast again, hearing your voice again. But again, just thank you for sharing your time with the POC community and the POC platform. Um, and yeah. Oh, uh, man. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's an honor to be on the show and to be able to utilize this platform to talk about something that I'm extremely passionate about, you know, and, and, and something that, you know, our people can really benefit from. So, again, thank you for this platform. And again, please, please go support the cause and the movement. For sure. For sure. And I'm going to be uploading his his podcast playlist um, we didn't get to that. I know we kind of running out of time, but we didn't get to his podcast playlist, but that will be made available on Spotify and on Apple Music. So be looking out for that. That is your show, ladies and gentlemen, the Color Reimagined podcast presented to you by Mental Health Edition. See you next episode.